Matthew 26, 69 through 27, 8. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our fortress and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I sound really loud to me. Am I really loud to you? Can y'all turn me down a little bit in the back? All right, thank you. Um, So if there was an urban dictionary around in the 80s, it definitely would have had the word psych in it. You know the word psych, it has nothing to do with psychology. Psych is when you sort of trick someone else and you tell them something to intentionally mislead them and then you psych, right? Right? You say psych and and you you mess with them. And today, if um, that's what we're doing. So like, you know, we've gone through, if you've been counting through the seven deadly sins and today we're on deadly sin number eight, psych. (laughs) Uh, You know, I know some of you are like, what is the deal with this church? What is the deal? Like, I mean, is this an overachiever bunch where we just, we have to have like extra deadly sins because we're that kind of people. No, no. Uh, So the two reasons why we would have eight deadly sins instead of seven. So one is um, actually historical. Uh, In the early church, in in the third century, when the the folks who began, especially Evagrius, who began to put this list down of the real big uh, obstacles that they saw to discipleship in young followers of Jesus, these were called the eight deadly thoughts. And over the centuries, because there's been debate over what are the worst things that beset, besetting sins that really, really bind up and cause struggles among new believers, this list has been sort of pared down to seven. And vainglory, which I've preached on already, was replaced with pride. Uh, but they really start out as a list of eight. And then second is, the, is theologically, because over the centuries, theologians have agreed that pride is really not just 
one of the deadly sins, it's sort of the foundation under all of them. It's like the basement of a house. It's like the trunk of a vine, and all of these deadly sins grow off of pride. And all other sins are like leaves or little minor branches that grow off of that. So we're in actually really good company today looking at the sin of pride as sort of the capital vice today to round out this series to look at this is sort of the big one. Now, this past week I saw the movie Shazam, and part of that's because I grew up watching Shazam on Saturday mornings because I'm that old, 70s. Uh, Saturday morning superhero driving around in a Winnebago in the American West. Uh, but Shazam, the new movie, has just come out, and it's a DC comic, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a fun movie. But what I love about it is that the villains, the enemies of Shazam in the movie are the seven deadly sins. And they're portrayed in this way, which I think is really sharp. They're portrayed both as monsters, but also as spirits. So they sort of Ghosts, when they go spirit, they go it, kind of this vapory, smoky thing. And I like that because it shows both the fact that these sins are our enemies. They're monsters. They're out to destroy us. And yet they're also spiritual. They're spiritual vices. They're, they're things that we are combating and trying to deal with. And if I was the movie maker, I would have had eight of them, not seven. And I would have had like pride be the arch enemy, you know, the mastermind behind all of them, because that's what we find here. Now, today we're picking up this passage. This is one of my favorite things to preach on. So I've talked about this before. If you've been through the New City Fellows, I've talked about this some. Uh, I love talking about Judas, and yet I know my preaching professor would shoot me because nobody ever wants to identify with Judas, and that's what I'm going to do in the sermon today is make you identify with Jesus, Judas. Uh, but I want us to look at this uh, together because pride is not what we think it is. The, the, there, there are two types, several ways we talk about pride. So if you're an Avid Brothers fan, they sing in their song, uh, The Perfect Space, I want to have pride like my mama has and not the kind of the Bible that makes you bad, right? So there's a good kind of pride, the kind of pride that's enjoying the maturity of another person, appreciating the gifts of another person. There's the pride that we, we have in our teams, in our nation, in our families, in, in friends. Pride is dignity, but there is a kind of pride that makes you bad, that turns you bad as they sing. C.S. Lewis has probably written on this better than anyone else. In Mere Christianity, he wrote, There's one vice which no man in the world, of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see in someone else, of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they're guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular, no fault of which we are more unconscious in ourselves, the vice I'm talking about is pride. The things that we think of as pride, however, the things that we most easily identify in other people are often actually the least dangerous forms. We associate pride with cockiness or arrogance, boasting, a person who doesn't need anybody's help, a person who's inflated, has an inflated self-image. And those, those are bad. I mean, the Greeks talk about that as hubris. You know, if you've read a lot of Greek tragedies, they're all based around pride, that kind of arrogance and pride. And yet, there is a type of pride that we don't think of as pride that is particularly the property of the people of God that is the most dangerous and the most lethal 
and we see in the person of Judas this morning. So I want to ask you to hang in with me, to try to identify here, uh, as we look at three things about pride, three things about pride. One, pride's agenda for God, pride's avoidance of God, and pride's invitation from God. So let's look at this together. Pride's, uh, pride's agenda for God. Now, let's start with what we know about Judas. In Matthew's gospel, he lists out the 12 disciples. Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, what's interesting about that list in Matthew's gospel is that Judas is the only person on the list who seems to have a last name, Judas Iscariot. And yet, if you know anything about ancient languages, that's not, that doesn't sound like a Jewish last name. And if you read your Bible closely, you'll see these phrases like, um, with the phrase bar or ben. So Simon bar Jonah uh, means Simon, the son of Jonah. My name would be Jeff bar James, right? Uh, Jeff, the son of James. And so this name, Iscariot, doesn't really fit that. In fact, we know that Judas's name would have been Judas bar Simon. In, in John's gospel, he tells us what his daddy's name was. So most commentators don't think that this is either a family name or a place name. Rather, most commentators look at this and say, this seems to be something else. And if you look through Matthew's account there of how he lists out the disciples, they're sort of grouped by their jobs. They're sort of grouped by what they did. All the fishermen are put together. And at the end there, you get Simon the Zealot, and you get Judas Iscariot. A lot of people look at this and say, this seems to be pointing us to this first century group of zealots called the Scari, S-I-C-A-R-I-I. So Judas Scariot, Judas the Scari one of the scary. Uh, it would make sense, this, with, with regard to the rest of the story. See, unlike the zealots, the scary were sort of an underground terrorist group in the first century. They carried knives called, I don't know how to say this, Sikai, S-I-C-A-E, that they carried under their robes for assassination purposes. They would blend in with the crowd. They were very much about the overflow, overthrow of the Roman government and the, the reclaiming of the Jewish state. And so they were about cloak and dagger kind of terrorism of the Roman government, killing where they could, blending in with the crowd. And this actually makes sense of a lot of Judas's actions. Uh, Judas's actions otherwise are kind of unexplainable. It would make no sense for Judas just to betray Jesus for money. Now, we know from John's gospel that Judas did carry the purse. He carried the money bags for the disciples, and he was known to take some off the top of that. And yet, in this situation, Judas goes and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And yet, it really doesn't make sense he's doing this for some kind of gain unless he was a Sicariot, a Sicarii. See, his betrayal makes sense if Judas is actually wanting Jesus to do something. And here's what we see. Judas had just watched Jesus in the triumphal entry, this day, Palm Sunday, come into Jerusalem 
with the popular vote. Jesus has the hearts of the people. People are cheering for him. They recognize him. They want him to be their king. And Judas watches this popularity and sees Jesus do, after Palm Sunday, nothing. Nothing with it. No big move. No public declaration. No gather the people. Judas knew Jesus is right on the right on the cusp of sparking the revolution. People would follow him. He did, but Jesus didn't claim his power or a new government. So if Jesus wasn't going to do something, Judas would. Judas would. And so the betrayal is less about personal gain, and it's more about forcing Jesus' hand. Because Judas knew, look, Jesus is compelling. If, if I can get other people to listen to him, if I can get, if, if I can finally push him onto the public stage, this whole thing is going to flip. See, not to sell him out, this whole betrayal of Jesus with a kiss is not to sell him out, but to get Jesus back on track. Now, Judas looked like a real disciple. He was pro-Jesus. He was with Jesus. He had walked with Jesus. Uh, but what he really had was an agenda for Jesus. This is the first thing I want us to talk about with regard to spiritual pride. Pride is dangerous when pride has an agenda for God. The proud heart doesn't want God, but wants control of God. Wants control of God. Not knowing God or enjoying God or worshiping God, or, but having God do what you want him to do. Having God give you your best life now. Bless your life Deliver on the things that you know God can do for you and should be doing. See, we always look at Judas as if he's some kind of monster in the Bible, but I, I think Jesus, Judas is more like than unlike us. I think he's a lot more like than unlike. He's both a special case in the New Testament, and you can argue with me about that. Sure, he's a special case. But he's sort of not. He's sort of very much like us because can't we be honest? I mean, there are a lot of times that we don't worship God or follow God for just who He is, in His beauty, in His character, because we're just so taken with Him, because, but we have an agenda. We're like, God, we have stuff that we want You to do for us. And what we really want, what we really want from God is exposed when those desires are blocked, when God doesn't deliver, when He doesn't answer the prayers the way you expected, when He doesn't show up in the way that you want Him to. Um, see, you can follow Jesus, right, because you want a great family. I mean, who doesn't want a great family? You could follow Jesus because you want him to bless your career. Who doesn't want a great career? That's not bad. That's not hurting anybody. You could follow Jesus because you want a spouse. You could follow Jesus because you, want, you, you know, like, if I do these things, God will deliver for me. That's what, that's what we do. We, we, we make this into a formula. See, we look at the disciples and we say, you know, if I lived back then, if I was one of those guys who walked around with Jesus, you know, it's so hard being a Christian now when you don't see, it's not tangible, it's not immediate, but like if I was one of them back then, it would be very different. But Judas kind of confronts us here and says, would it? Or would we also have an agenda for Jesus? Here's how you know. Here's how you know. Uh, how, how do you know if you have an agenda that you're following God for, rather than following Him for Himself? Here's how you know. When you're, what are you disillusioned by with regard to your faith? 
When you look at your own faith life over the last years, where, where do you feel just this real sense of letdown or the sense of being behind in your life? You know, like, by this point in my life, I just thought, I thought I'd be further down the road. I thought things would be different. How would you answer these questions? Four questions here. Um, I'm not really happy unless I have blank. I'd be willing to disobey God in order to get blank. Life only has meaning if I can have blank. I only have worth if I have blank. See, I, I see this in our city all the time. I, I'm run into people and they ask me what I do. Telling them I'm a pastor is usually, that's a conversation stopper right there. Uh, <laughs> And I find out a lot of folks who have, used to go to church and used to be into the things of God and used to name themselves as Christian and yet are now far off. And they're like, you know, that didn't work. What, what didn't work? Jesus didn't die for your sins? No, no. That whole Christian thing didn't work. And what they mean is they, wanted, they didn't want a relationship with God. They wanted a bargain with God. They wanted things to work out. And that's not just true for people outside the church. That's for, true for us. I mean, we often want a bargain with God more than we want a relationship, and that is spiritual pride. It's spiritual pride. Uh, it's a religious way to control God, to kind of manage God. It's having an agenda for Him, not a relationship with Him, not a vital connection to Him. This is why the New Testament it's easy, it says it's easy to look like a disciple, and yet your God is your stomach. It's what you want. It's what you want. A prideful heart has an agenda for God. So when your desires are blocked, when God doesn't deliver, it shows the ways that we come to God wanting God to be, we want Jesus to be a kind of a vitamin supplement to our life. <laughs> Make things a little better for me. Make me a healthier version of me. Or we want Jesus to be a butler who delivers on our desires. Or you know, we want Jesus to be like the variable in the equation, and we just plug him in and out come great kids or great family or great life. And see, Jesus has bigger desires for us than simply our little tiny small K kingdoms. He's inviting us to live in the big K kingdom, which is not safe, and it's not controllable, and it's what He wants, and it's incredible. But it's not yours. So that's the first kind of pride. The second, the second way we see a prideful heart is Pride's avoidance of God. Pride's avoidance of God. <clears throat> Judas shows us that there is a way to see your own sin and even deal with your sin in a way that avoids God entirely. Avoids God entirely. You know, one of the things I love about this passage is the way that Matthew writes Judas' story and Peter's story next to each other. Do you notice that? Judas' story and Peter's story are just right there together for us to compare, to contrast. And, and it's, a, it's a fascinating comparison, right? Both of these men, their sin looks very similar. Both of them, in their different ways, betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them you know, reject, show this rejection in the moment. And both of them, they, they, they sell out... Uh, but both of them turn their backs. They realize they've sinned grievously, and both of them do some version of coming back 
weeping tears and trying to, fix, trying to undo this. Trying to, to undo this. Um, both of them have this change of heart. So look at verses 3 and 4. When Judas hears the religious leaders don't want to follow Jesus, that he hasn't pushed them on, Jesus onto a stage, he's pushed them to the cross, he goes uh, to try to undo the damage. Matthew 27, we read, Jesus was seized with remorse, words there which mean deep sorrow, he, he tried to return the money. He says, I have sinned. He says the words of repentance, right? And he says, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Peter denies Jesus three times, as was predicted. And when he hears the, the rooster crow, it says, he remembered the sayings of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept, wept bitter, bitterly. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Judas and Peter? They're so similar in their sin. Both became sorry. Both did actions that we associate with making things right, Christian actions, what you're supposed to do with sin. And yet the big difference between them is pride, is pride. One man hangs himself. The other becomes the leader of the early church. I mean, vastly different outcomes, almost the same behaviors, almost the same behaviors. So this passage shows us that there can be a good kind of grief and a bad kind of grief. Now, that sounds really weird, but our sadness over our sin can be good and it can be bad. Um, the difference is pride. Now, now, think about this. How can that be? Like, you blow it in public. <laughs> you, it's undeniable for other people to, to see you. Both these men have that experience. They blow it in public. Uh, you feel crushed. You feel terrible. Uh, you, you know you're a big sinner. You weep tears. You even try to make things right. And yet one of those can be bad, bad grief. And one of those could be good grief. What's the difference? Their actions look identical, but it shows us that repentance is not just about our behavior. It's not just about what we look like. It's something much deeper. And the dis distinction is this. And I'm going to draw this out. Is when Peter saw his betrayal, he moved toward Christ. And we're going to look at that again next week. Uh, when Judas saw his betrayal, he moved away from Christ. And that's really the difference. Uh, when he moved away, think about the way you and I respond to seeing our own sins. When we see, like, you've really blown it with a good friend or with your family members or you've just lost it with your kids or, or you have done something, you've lied and been caught in a lie, you've, you've done something illegal, and that's been like, it's, it's public. I mean, all of us, we respond in those moments with shame. And if we've it's easy to say, okay, what do I need to do next? What, what is the right response? And there, there are three ways I want to show you that, that we see like what, what responses we can have and which ones are good grief and which are in bad grief. They're, they're really simple. Remorse, resolve, and repentance. Let's look at these together. So Judas shows us remorse. Look at verse 3. In the original Greek, the word there for remorse, for crying, uh, for, for sorrow there, it, it's it's a word that's used for an outward display of sorrow, and yet it's different from the word that's used for repentance. And if you look closely at Judas and you look closely at the, your own heart, you know the difference between those things. Remorse cries tears. And, and we're, we're taken in by tears, aren't we? I mean, someone cries and we're like, we're moved by that, I hope. <laughs> uh, you see someone crying and you're like, something's really wrong. They feel really badly about something. And yet, one of the questions we should ask of ourselves with our tears is, 
what do those tears mean? Tears don't always mean the same things. You know there's a difference between happy tears and sad tears. But there's a difference, too, between tears of self-pity and tears of real repentance. Tears of self-pity come from a bruised pride. Tears that come from being ashamed. Tears that come from saying, I can't believe I did that. I'm not really like that, you know. That's not me. Tears that are not so much sorrow over the effects of your sin. Like, this has hurt someone. Jesus had to die for this. There's a payment required here, not over the effects of sin, but sort of the facts of our sin, that you actually are kind of the person who would need a Savior. Um, When you've sinned, what do you do? There's a way to feel bad but not move toward God in that moment. We have, we have to be really careful of this. Pride can be, is absorption with self, and that can enter very much into our so-called repentance, our remorse. When we, when we, keep, when we disobey God and we keep staring at it, and we say, look at how I let God down. We stop there. We stop there. That's pride. That's not going to change you. That doesn't change your heart. It will push you to despair. See, what's wrong with remorse? Well, on the surface of it, nothing. But if that's all that there is, then remorse can be a a place where we still think too highly of self, where we still think too much of ourselves. That's not repentance. Remorse actually can reveal a heart that doesn't think much about Jesus, doesn't think much of Him. We still think too much of self. The, the Christian life is not about groveling. It is not about feeling bad to feel bad. We don't feel bad over our sin, and somehow that makes God happy. We have a lot of like cartoonish definitions of what this means. Right? We don't, if, we need, if we need to feel bad enough, then somehow that makes God happy and He forgives us. That, that is not how that works. That's not how it works. Um, that's an act of contrition, to use a Catholic term for that. Um, somehow you're feeling bad makes God feel good. Like, you know, if, if that's the case, then how much is enough? How bad do you have to feel for how long in order for God to be okay with that? You know, do you need to be like the, the pastor in a scarlet letter who stays up all night and stares at the candle, you know, and is sad and just more and more sad? Is that what God wants of us? It's just more and more sentence. See, here's how, here's how you know you're sort of stuck with this definition of repentance. Is not only do you think that like you're feeling bad somehow fixes it, but then you look for some kind of emotional response, some kind of sign from the Lord to show you that He's okay with you again. So I, I, I've talked with people who are like this, you know, that make us feel forgiven. So, um, It's going to sound funny, but I don't mean to be cute with this. You know, I just want God to, like, do something, like, give me a space, a parking spot at the mall right up front. Like, that'll show me, you know, he's okay with me again. I I just want God to send me some kind of little sign that makes me know, like, we're okay again. And I'm like, yeah, uh, I don't, forgive me for this. I'm a little bit sarcastic here, but I'm like, really? You know, like, the death of his son, that wasn't enough for you. Like the, the cross and the empty tomb, you need something else like a parking spot. That really is going to seal the deal for you. See, we're looking for some emotional thing in us and some emotional feeling that convinces us, okay, we're, I guess we're done here. We're, we're, we can move on. But see, that is deadly because Jesus is not even in the picture. It's deadly. 
It's a deadly sin. It's spiritual pride. Um, second form of fake repentance we also see in Judas is resolve. Now, resolve is making promises. I'm going to do better next time. I'm not going to do this again. I'll make it up to you. I can change. Resolve tries to fix it. Now, notice Judas. He goes into the temple. He takes back the money. He says the words of repentance. I have sinned. He tries to make it right. Confesses, I have shed innocent blood. It looks good, right? That looks good to us. I've sat with a lot of people in working through confession, working through what they've done wrong. And they go through these stages. There's grief, which I've said is appropriate. Tears are appropriate. Then there's undoing, you know, just a sense of, oh. And then, though, they sort of turn a corner to, um, what now what should I do? And I have to be really careful at that place because that can be the orphan's plea to negotiate. The orphans plead to negotiate. Uh, the resolve to fix self, that is not repentance. It's not repentance. Uh, neither good deeds nor asceticism or resolve to do anything, uh, to, to fix things, is some, in it, nothing but empty religiosity. It, it, nothing but empty religi- religiosity. Now, look, I look at, it, at you guys, and you are a very accomplished group of people, right? Um, y- y'all have made things happen in your lives. Y- y'all have made plans and made them happen. And so we're so used to, the, to that, we're like, hey, I'll apply that to my Christian life. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I know what it takes to get into that school. I know what it takes to get that kind of job. I know what it takes to make that person think I'm great. I'm going to use that in my Christian life. And it, that is nothing more than spiritual pride. Because the problem is we don't have any idea how big our sin is and how our utter ability to fix ourselves. Jeremiah says, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. See, Judas is surprisingly prideful here. Surprisingly prideful. Resolve always wants to maintain pride. It always wants to maintain pride. So Judas despairs of God. Judas despairs of God's grace even as he makes much of himself. Right? He can't get past his failure and he can't see Jesus in that moment. We do this too. You know, how many times have I sat down with folks, and you've sat down with folks, and in your community group you've heard people say this, I can't forgive myself. Man, I know what that feels like. There's something about that where you're saying, this sin is so great, what I've done, so destructive. And yet, and yet be careful, be really careful with that, because you're saying, I can't get over this. I can't move on. And what you're really saying is, I can't believe I'm the type of person who needs the blood of Jesus. I can't believe I'm that kind of a sinner. I thought it was much better than that. All those other people in my community group, they're those people like that. Right? Like, I can't believe I'm that type of person, a person who needs the gospel. You can't fix you. That is the point. If God knew we didn't just need a reform program, we needed a dying Savior. You know, if, if we just need a reform program, he would have sent us a much better Dr. Phil, right, with good advice for us. Here's what you're going to do. Here's your plan. And, man, there's a lot of Christian preaching, a lot of Christian teaching that's like, here's seven steps, right? But we didn't need a reform program. Uh, if you could fix you, you do not need a Savior. You just need an example to follow. 
You just need an example. He didn't send a how-to manual, shrink-wrapped, dropped down from heaven. He sent his son. He sent his son. See, we are spiritually unable to fix ourselves. This is what leads us like, look, these are dead ends, and they look spiritual. They look Christian, right? They look right to us. Remorse, sadness over sin, resolve. I'm going to change. The only thing that really changes the heart is repentance. You know that word, but I want to give some definition to it. This is the difference between Peter and Judas. Lots of people have heard, why don't you just do this? I could push a button. You can give me, what's the definition for repentance? To turn around. Now, that's what repentance literally means. But we see Judas do that, right? He changes his mind. He goes back and gives back the silver. So it can't just mean turn around. We do this with the Greek text a lot of times. Just a side note for you Bible study people. Uh, We do this with the Greek text. We're like, that word must mean this concept. They're like exactly the same. But that doesn't work. That's not how English works, is it? Pineapple is not either a pine tree or an apple. Uh, Butterfly has nothing to do with butters or flies, right? So just back a little bit off of what you think you know about Greek, all right? It's coming from a very non-Greek scholar, by the way. So um, repentance is not a behavioral category. It's neither weeping enough to make God feel good or doing enough to change yourself. It's It's a relational category. It's a relational category. It's the opposite of remorse. It's the opposite of resolve. If pride leads us to false repentance, to either remorse or resolve, um, ways that maintain pride, repentance is letting go of pride, yielding pride. It's, it's good grief. What's good grief? I'm not talking about Charlie Brown. Good grief is when you are grieved. It's when you're overwhelmed. You think about how good he is, how gigantic his grace and mercy is for sinners. You think about how he was so obedient every day for your disobedience. You think about the cost of the nails. You think about the thorn, the crown of thorns. See, when we see our sin and own it, we run to the foot of the cross. We run to the foot of the cross. We're going to look at this next week as Peter does that. He runs to Jesus. Uh, And we say, "It's, it's not through what I do for you, it's, it's what you've done for me. You lived for me. You died for me. That is everything and all that I need. And there are different kinds of tears that come out of that. Different kinds of tears. The great uh, 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon used to say this. I'm like, I have a great need for God. Anybody who's really been a Christian for more than two minutes knows this. A great need for God. I have a great God for my need. See, repentance despairs of self. Self's ability to feel bad enough. Self's ability to fix self and runs to him. Despairs of self runs to Jesus. Pride despairs of Jesus and, run, and tries, looks at self, maintains self. See, real repentance is despair of self and make much of God. It's to despair of flesh as I mean to fix self. It's despair of your own ability even feel bad enough about it. It's like, I need him. One of my, my great heroes, Robert Murray McShane, I've said this a hundred times in this church, I'm going to keep saying it. My favorite quote by him is, for every one look at I, my sin, I take ten looks at the cross. Now, why does he say that? Because he's like Debbie Downer? No, he's like, you know, my sin always lifts my, my eyes go from there straight to Jesus, to his cross. I look to his redemption. Um, that's the point. That's the whole point. Lots of Christians get stuck. 
They get stuck uh, here, you know, the whole, as if the whole point of the Christian life was to feel bad enough, to try to do better next time, to be in sin management. Nobody wants to be in ma- middle management. Sin management, right? Um, to, to become adept at trying to root out every known sin, to play whop-a-mole like you do at the state fair, just bat it down or let it bat down. That is not the point of the Christian life. The Christian life is to see written over you over and over and over again in all these ex- experiences it is finished, paid in full. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. See, there's a way that pride actually, in looking at our sin, avoids God. This is where I want to give you the invitation. What we see at the end here is pride's invitation from God. As I said, you know, Judas is both like us and unlike us. I mean, he's a special case. Uh, Of course, his betrayal was prophesied. His betrayal was part of God's plan for how he was going to deliver up his son to be crucified. And yet, and yet, even in this, even in this tragic story, I want you to see Jesus' invitation to Judas, his heart toward the pride, uh, the, prou- the proud hearts of us, uh, prideful people. So when Jesus, when Judas comes, and Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, Judas comes in with a, a group of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And he comes and he kisses him. He says, the one I kiss, that's the one. Arrest him. There's this little moment where Jesus gives these strange words. You know what he says to Judas in this moment? Friend, do what you came to do. I mean, it's a bizarre statement. Like, friend. Why would Jesus say this? Remember, he has just taught the disciples this. Greater man has... Let me say it the right way. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. This is Jesus' heart, even in this moment, toward Judas. Is this, like, I see you. I'm dying even for these kind of sins. I'm dying even for these prideful ones who have tried to manage God in our sin. You know, like, we avoid God with our remorse and our our. our, our Resolve to do better next time? This is the invitation for us to hear from Jesus. God say to you, friend, friend, I see you. So, so back to Shazam. You know, Shazam uh, is a great, great movie. Uh, but if all, I love how they characterize these enemies as real enemies and deadly enemies. But look, if you're going to fight the enemies of the seven deadly sins in your life, it's not going to be through your tears, and it's not going to be through your promises. It's not going to be through superhuman strength like Shazam or super speed or ability to take a bullet or zap things with your fingers. It's because you have a gigantic Savior. You have a big Jesus. And so, fellow prideful ones who spent all week with your agenda for Jesus, who spent all week avoiding Him through things that look like repentance but are not, friends, Come this morning. Remember that you are his friends, that he invites you to himself and lay down your pride and receive all that he has for you in his redemption, his resurrection, and even his sanctifying work in your life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, we find ourselves in a place of great unworthiness again this morning. And Father, we have come up with intricate ways to avoid you and agendas for you. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to come this morning in repentance, not with stirring up some kind of feelings or promises of change, but simply receiving what you've given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have a great need for God and a great God for our need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.